The Secret Library Podcast is brought to you in part by our amazing Patreon members. I want to give a special shout out to them for being a part of supporting the show. If you'd like to join and get solo episodes inside my writing process, as well as the chance to submit questions for special Q&A episodes, you can check it out and join at patreon.com slash secret library. As we're getting close to the halfway point in this season, I wanted to answer a question that some of you may be asking, which is, okay, it's really great to listen to all these episodes and learn all of this material, but how do we put this into practice? How do I move forward and use all of this material in my own writing life? Well, I'm so glad that you asked, because starting in April, we're going to release the Next Draft course, where I will be walking you through all of the tips, tricks, and resources from the season, as well as the inside scoop on how I've applied it in the revision of my own novel. If you would like to get notified when the course is first available, you can subscribe to Footnotes at secretlibrarypodcast.com. Once again, a huge thank you to our incredibly supportive Patreon members who help keep the Secret Library podcast going. If you'd like to join in and get solo episodes from Inside My Writing Process, as well as the chance to ask questions for custom Q&A episodes, you can check it out at patreon.com slash secret library. If you're looking for extra support in your writing life as well, you can sign up for a consult and learn how coaching can help you meet your writing goals this year. You can book a complimentary discovery session with me at secretlibrarypodcast.com slash consult. This is the Secret Library Podcast. My guest this week is Hannah Dennison, who is the author of two and soon to be three mystery series. Born in the UK, Hannah began her writing career as an obituary reporter, experience which later became the basis of her Honeychurch Hall series set in the countryside and full of quirky English customs and traditions. She went on to work in a variety of fascinating fields, from antiques to serving as a secretary to a Formula One racing driver, before she became a flight attendant on both commercial and private airlines. On one private flight, she was lucky enough to meet Steven Spielberg, who asked her what her dream was, and she told him it was to become a writer. After receiving his encouragement that she should follow through on this dream rather than just talking about it, Hannah took the leap and moved to Los Angeles, where she spent a number of years working in Hollywood film studios while learning everything she could about writing. Years later, she's back in the English countryside, using all of her experience as she writes delicious mysteries. I was really fortunate to meet Hannah when I did a writing retreat on Tresco Island in the Scilly Isles, where Hannah has set her newest series. It was a real delight to be completely immersed in the world of mystery for a few days, a form that I have always loved and read enthusiastically my entire life. And as I was in this conversation with Hannah, I just wanted an excuse to talk to her again, because she's so good at breaking down structure and making everything clear as you go through the book. She's also really wonderful at looking at what's happening. Why isn't the story working? Why is it lagging? And how can you resolve it? So in this episode, we go through a lot of her tips and tricks, looking at structure and ways that you can make characters come alive, assess scenes and see if they're necessary and bring everything back to life if it's dragging for you as you're writing. I'm really thrilled to have Hannah on the show. You can get notes, links, and more information from this episode, as well as sign up for footnotes, weekly letters about your writing at secretlibrarypodcast.com. So here we go with Hannah Dennison. 
Hey, Hannah, thank you so much for coming on the show. I am so thrilled to be here. I, I'm a great fan of your library. And um, so I feel very, very special that I've been included. So thank you. Oh, my goodness. Well, I love talking to you. So any excuse to talk to you would be a reason to get you on the show. So I, I, we were, we had to start recording because we were, of course, chatting beforehand. And I was like, no, 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 this is good. We have to get into it. And so you were talking about when you're writing a mystery of which you have written now, 13? Is it 13? Yes. yes, actually, I'm on my, I think I'm actually writing my 14th, but I've got two more coming out this year. So I, I have actually 11 published right now, and then two more to come out and one, one I'm writing at the same time. So yes, it's mind boggling. So you've obviously done this a number of times, but writing a mystery and the intense, complicated structure that's involved and in making that all work. I would love to know how much you know about how the story's going to go in the first draft and how much you have to figure out in revision? Like, what do you know in the first draft and what do you figure out and, and kind of polish up in subsequent drafts as you're revising? Well, I always know who the victim is. And um, just before we started uh, recording, we were just talking about Agatha Christie um, and uh, because she had just done a fabulous documentary for anyone who is an Agatha Christie fan about how she starts her books with um, a body and uh, the manner of death. That's all she knows. And from that point, she builds her story around that. And um, I always know my victim. Usually it's somebody I've I've got some personal grievance with. No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> I, there's always some something that I've met or or I've read about that's triggered the idea for the actual body. Because I quite like unusual settings when it comes to killing someone off, whether they're trampled by cows or drowning in a quarry or something unusual. Um, and so I, I, I always know that part. And because I write two series or three series soon, actually, with my new series coming out, I already have a cast of characters that are ongoing and recurring. So that's that's sort of quite much, much easier to set up. But the finding the killer is the thing that I always struggle with, believe it or not, because um, even in the book I've just finished, the killer came in on my fifth draft, which is my final draft. Um, it was a, a small, I shouldn't really, I won't tell you the title just in case. Yeah, it don't tell all. us who it is, but I'm really interested in the process. So you wrote four drafts not knowing who did it. I didn't. I had someone else completely. And uh, it was just the end, the polish. And I thought, you know what, this doesn't work anymore. This guy is not the one who did it. I know it's not him. And so I was able to tie something up from the very beginning, um, some small bit player that had like three lines and weave that in. But that's when you have to trust the process because it would be so much easier for me to say, oh, yeah, well, you know, never mind. I'll use that for another another book. But in this case, I thought, no, I'm going to go with my gut because this I know this makes it work better. And then it also spawns all the different red herrings from that point, you know, like with any writing, um, any mystery, anytime you pull a piece of the puzzle out, the whole thing starts to fall apart. So you have to re-knit it again. So that's that's kind of the way I go with it. It's it's very um, nerve wracking, actually, because you have to trust trust that each time your mind comes up with a different scenario, a what if you have to go and explore that 
before you discard it. And I think that's that's the part where you take that leap of faith of, shall I just try and see if this works? And if it doesn't, then I file all those fake scenes, if you like, the discarded scenes into a, a folder of um, discarded scenes, I call it. So <laughs> it, it makes me feel a bit more secure that I can go back and and take it out again if I change my mind. So how do you, I mean, because it is a puzzle, because there there is this intricate structure, particularly with a mystery, how do you keep track of everything that's going on? Because one thing that I've found while revising a draft is that if you change one little tiny thing here, it's like that thing about butterfly a butterfly on one side of the world flaps its wings and it changes the, you know, the weather system on the other side. It feels that way when revising a draft. So how do you keep track of everything that happens throughout the book? Because it's just too difficult to hold it all in your mind at once. So how do you kind of, I I don't even know how to phrase this. This is how overwhelming this process is. How do you hold on to what the impact is going to be when you make a change? I think what I started to do a long time ago is I would take each character and I would list the um, what each character was doing, even if it's just a minor character. And if there was a clue involved in that character or they brought something to the story, I would write it down as a checklist, you know, a bullet bullet point checklist. And I go through each character. So sometimes I'd have maybe 10, 14 pages of sort of just bullet points of things that I need to check go in the story somewhere or they're already in the story, but I can tick it off and say, yeah, I dealt with that in chapter five. Um, some people use, um, like Reese Bowen, um, she, who writes loads of, she's got lots of books out. She always used post-its and she puts them on her wall and she takes the poster every time she addresses that clue or something, which I think is quite good, but I don't have a big enough wall, I think. Um, I so love that's, that how I do it, but it's very much spinning plates and I do get really overwhelmed. But also I think you also use Scrivener, I believe we've talked I about. Do. So Scrivener has been really, really helpful for that. Um, how do just, you, how do you use it for that issue? Uh, well, I tend to use the, um, when it has that section, when you're in the, the, um, the court board mode yep. and, and I, and then you've got the notes side, um, on the right, there's that little section where you can put notes and a description of what happens in that particular chapter. So I, I tend to use that, but I, you know, I normally only do that for the first two drafts and then I go and export everything to word and do it old school, you know, like that. And then go through my checklist and, and things. And so I always have like, um, after about maybe four drafts, I have, a, I'll have a loose end page. And when there'll be, I don't know, maybe 30 items on there that I have to tick off. So I'm quite methodical in that respect, but that's more the funny enough. It's, it's almost like the part I enjoy the most because I've already got the book down and I've got that frame. So now I'm just adding in layers and details uh, and that's and it's quite satisfying, as anyone knows who's a list maker, when you can just cross it off. Oh, it's the best, the, the best. best feeling. Yeah. So what's what is the part that's the most difficult for you? Um, definitely the beginning, obviously the blank page, um, because often I'll I'll walk I walk my dogs a lot, so I do a lot of thinking when I'm walking. And I get terribly excited thinking, yeah, that's what, that's it. That's what I need to do. And I get home 
I sit at the computer and then I have to go and take a nap immediately. It's just too, too exhausting. I get very tired in the first, doing a first draft. Um, and I think it was my sister. She said, well, if you're thinking about it, your, your mind is working so hard to put a story together that of course you're going to get tired and you have to. So I go with that now. So I nap a lot. Um, but I also find the worst time when you say what's the hardest part is the first draft is almost like playing with the Play-Doh. You know, you just throw it all out there. You know, no one's ever going to look at it. So you can be sort of free. The second draft is when I've actually printed out my first draft and I totally want to kill myself because it's so awful. It's so far away from what it's going to end up to be. And I, I think I can't do it this time. This is it. I can't do it this time. This is never going to happen again. And, and then, that still happens every time. Every single time, every time. And even um, Carolyn Hart, who's a well-known mystery writer, she's, I think she's in her 80s. She's written 62 books. And she, I think it was just the last two books she has emailed me and said, I can't do this. I can't do it. She, we all feel like it. You know, that there is that point where you think, what, well, this isn't going to work. And then suddenly it does. And then you think, oh, well, of course, I, I knew it was going to work. But you, you really don't, actually. So. Yeah, there's a point. Uh, yeah. yeah, I think there's always this point. I had that point several days before finishing the draft. And, you know, it's like usually involves crying and... Absolutely. This isn't going to happen. What was I thinking? It was a crazy idea. I can't put this all together. It's not possible. It's almost like that's necessary. And you yeah. really have to believe it, that, that it's that bad in order to break through and get to the other side of it. I think it almost is like giving birth. I truly do. There's that moment of pain and you forget. And then suddenly it sort of all comes together and it's, it's okay. But um, I do, no, I definitely have more of the Dorothy Parker mindset, which is I absolutely hate writing, but I really love having written. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm very happy when I've done a good day's work. I'm thinking, yes, I really love this. But when I'm actually in the middle of it all, it's, it's really a struggle until the characters start speaking to you, which they do for me about the third draft, I think. Then they start to actually, you know, take over a little bit. So that's always a good feeling but you somehow still got to get through the first couple of drafts. So and what right happens if you, I'm... sorry, oh, no, sorry, I got no. excited. No. <laughs> you get to the end of the first draft and you want to kill yourself because it looks so horrible. So, so what do you do in the second draft to begin to address that feeling? Like, what do you tackle first in order to try to get it closer to what you hoped it would become? I think what I do is I, I try to put on my editing hat. So I'm not, I'm not writing at that point. Um, I think is that the right word? I'm sort of like trying to block what I have into some sense of order. So it's almost, I'll, I'll read through and I probably won't have a full draft. My first draft is normally about, I don't know, maybe 50,000 words. My books are normally 70, 75. And so then I'll be really ruthless. I'll, I'll just pretend that it's not my work and I've just got someone else's hat on. And then I'll go through each page and do a sort of summary of what has to happen there. Um, and always, the thing is, I have to print it all out so I can feel the paper because I feel that's where the there's a heart to having it on paper that I can touch. 
Um, and then I'll use my, you know, I use my red pen and I just scribble all over it. And then I'll go back again on the third draft and, and start to, to like really, really work through each paragraph. But I throw out probably about 70% of my second and the second draft I'll throw out of my first draft. So, and that I've, I've noticed there's a pattern for that. And I think a lot of writers, especially if you come from a screenwriting background, that it's most people will throw out a lot of the first draft. Um, and it's often, I when I look at my first chapters and what they turn out to be when they're published, it's completely different. I mean, the Honeychurch Hall series, um, my character was married to a Russian mafia person. I mean, and I know In the that first you, book? In Honeychurch Hall, yeah. So she was totally different. She was married. She was all to do with the Russians. and The main character? Yeah, I know. It's crazy, right? Oh, so, that's, so, that's so different than how she is in so the books different. now. I, I know. So I kept that just out of curiosity to see how far that thought process of that, like, that doesn't work, that feels wrong. Let me see where I'm going to go with it to sort of trusting that process. Yeah, because it's there's no Russians in it, as you know. So, yeah, I, I'm like, am I am I forgetting something really yeah, significant? I know, I know. And so you know, there was an art, there was a fire and arson and you know stabbing. I don't know, it was crazy. There's nothing <laughs> so because they're very you know lighthearted. So yeah, I know. I love that. I'm I'm interested because one of the things that I've admired in your books and your writing is how well the dialogue flows. And I think people who have screenwriting backgrounds just have this kind of ear for dialogue. And I find that that's something that I sometimes find challenging and I have to read it out loud and think, would someone ever actually talk like that? And, you know, it doesn't come as naturally, but I feel like it must for you because of how good the dialogue is in it. Is that true? I think I think you're right about the screenwriting background because most of it is all through dialogue. Um, the downside is, of course, that it takes me forever to write descriptions because I didn't have to write them before. So I was more about you know the mood and what was conveyed in in a in a conversation as opposed to having to describe a room or what's happening outside in the countryside as they're riding on horses or whatever. So those, those things take me a really long time. It could definitely take me at least an hour to do a paragraph of description. I, it's very hard for me to do that, but dialogue is, um, dialogue. I quite enjoy that. I think it's cause I also listen a lot to what people talk about. Um, and I know my characters really well. Um, uh, I think that also helps is, you know, knowing what they're saying and, and what they're trying to actually convey in a captain subtext, as they say, you know, like <laughs> this. So not too much on the nose about, you know, what what the I try to convey the clues in a subtle way. I, I don't know whether it comes across, but I do my best on that one. I think it does. Yeah, because people think- never say, I mean, if people say what they're actually thinking, then it sounds ridiculous. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I'm, I'm also intrigued with the characters that I have, um, because I've, I've it's almost like doing a, an amateur sleuth duo really, cause I've got the mother and the daughter. So that kind of banter was quite easy for me. Cause it's sort of, sort of based on my banter with my own mom, who's quite fun. You know, she's quite a fun feisty woman. So, so that, that also helped, I think a little bit. 
Yeah, yeah. I think you have to have fun with it or else it just feels overwhelming. I, I exactly. You have to. Um, I think it's, it's too hard otherwise. So to be, I, so I try not to take it too seriously. Says me lying like hell. Cause really, you know, I, I have been known to go and have to lie down in a dark room and wish I was doing something different, you know, but <laughs> I think we all get to that point. So do you, so if you've got, you know, you write a 50,000 word first draft and then like a significant portion of which is cut as you're rewriting, uh, that's because the plot is changing. That's because you're adding in description or, or what do you think as you notice these patterns? Cause you mentioned that you noticed some patterns. What is it that you're usually getting rid of and then rebuilding as you move into, you know, the subsequent drafts? That's actually a really good question. Um, I think, I think I rebuild the direction of the plot at that point. Um, and maybe I throw out stuff that, that was perhaps a, irrelevant, like irrelevant descriptions or, cause sometimes, you know, I write, um, I'm sure lots of writers do. They, uh, I'll do a lot of, um, free writing to try and get the gold nugget somewhere in there. It might just be like a, two sentences or something, but it's in there. And from that point, even though there's a lot of waffle around it, useless conversation or just a, 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 a what seems to be a meaningless setting. But in that is maybe two sentences that will trigger what I really need to get. I think it's like mining mm-hmm. you know, like down there and you're trying to find the gold and you come up and you're a, it's just a tiny thing. But it's the thing that will take you through to the next step. So I think a lot of it is that is trying to find that and having the confidence to just to keep plowing in there, like chipping away until you can get it because it's there for everyone to find. It's just not giving up on it, really. Um, I think people get tired and overwhelmed and think, oh, there's nothing in there or there's not enough in there and then give up. Exactly. Exactly. Um, but just, there's just this one, just one word will jump out and that's, that's the one that will take you through. And then you'll rewrite something around that scene. Maybe, um, I do write chronologically, actually, I have tried to write out a sequence and it's, I find that really confusing when it comes to writing a mystery with clues, because I can't remember where I got to or where I put that clue in so that, that I have tried that. I do write the ending though, even if it's just in a very bullet point form you know these things have to happen here or or something I don't maybe flesh it and then I'll flesh it out later so I do know what what the ending's always going to be so you Um, know who's going to die and then you know how it's going to end but not necessarily who's done it and not everything that happens in between no, I'm feeling quite anxious now, even talking about it, really. <laughs> it's, um, I definitely, I, you know, when people talk about outliners or pantsers, seat of the pants, I definitely outline till about the first, because my murders tend to happen a little bit late in the book, which I, I know people get a bit, um, I've had, you know, why is it happening on page 90 or something? Because I so want to build up all the characters before to, to set up who it could be. So, uh, I, I'll always perhaps plant plant something at the beginning that's a mystery. So nothing I've written in is um, irrelevant. So if 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 I've just mentioned a husband that died six years ago in one sentence at the beginning of the book, pay attention to that because that is important. Even though it's not actually part of that beginning story, it will 
play out. So that's why I try to get the suspense doing on that really. Um, so yeah, I just, um, I was something now you, I can't remember you asked me a question. I, yeah, I was saying, I, I think I know now, and I got excited about the, the, the one sentence drop in. I think it's, you know, how do you know? So, you know, okay, you know, who's going to die and you know how, but you don't necessarily know who did it and you knew the end. So sort of how are you figuring well, this out as you get through the drafts? Okay. So that's, so that's right. So then in the beginning I do, I do the outline, like it's some story, like story beats and the save the cat, by the way, is brilliant. Mm, it's really good before. Um, so yeah, I do that. I plot that out till about page 90, I suppose, you know, like 10, my chapters are around eight, to nine pages each. Um, and then I'll know from that point on the story tends to tell itself after that, because I've, I've done all the planting up until that point, which is why I think it takes, it takes me a long time to climb up to that point in the story. And that's my, the hardest part for me. And then once that's that I reach that cut that, you know, the brow of the hill, it just starts to gain momentum and it will, and it, and I, it knows where it's going. Cause there's the ending there, you know, the climax at the quarry or the, in the woods or something. So and I have that denouement about the, all the loose ends tying up. Maybe not too detailed, but I know that's how the ending will be. So it's, it is a free fall from that point. But by that time, all the characters are like set in place. And I know how they're going to react because I've already, I've taken care with creating the characters in the beginning. So maybe, that, maybe that's what it, maybe that's how it carries it through. And I, ha I have done an outline before, but... I've always changed it in that last, you know, half third of the book. Um, I I find that this, the characters will take me off into a different direction. So I go with that. Yeah, sometimes they just won't go where you want them to go. Exactly. So you have to sort of like follow that. Yeah, like, like, no, I'm not doing that. Sorry. Yeah, exactly. So Maddening. So that's how, how it is, the process for me. Yeah. One thing that you talked about... Um, in a, in a really lovely course you did that I was in was the way that you deal with it when you're kind of going through and it feels like it's lagging and it feels like things aren't coming together. And one thing that you said that helps you is to give all the characters secrets. Yes. Love secrets. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little more about that. Yes. I always, I always give my characters, um, secrets, even if they're bit players. Um, it could be something that they had, that that's a, a sort of like a form of their own shame. It could be a past, some passing that they did and they can't forgive themselves for. But normally it's something like um, my main character in Honey, one of my main characters, the novel writing mother, you know, she writes in secret. So she doesn't want anyone to know that she writes romantic, uh, racy bodice ripper type novels. And so that's her secret. And so, yeah, I always, I always do what, what secret do the characters have? What would they, what would you find in their trash bin? If you went through their trash bin, what are they throwing away that they don't want anyone to see? Or if there's nothing in their trash bin, it shows in a way that that character is suspicious, doesn't want anyone to know anything about them, you know, or something. So I like to do that. Um, Always, always like, what is the worst thing that could possibly happen to my character 
you know, in all the world, whether or not it's like she gets her heart broken or she loses all her money or something that's really important. Uh, and then I would give, then I would make that happen. I really, really make my poor characters struggle and suffer a lot. Um, there was another one I read the other day, actually, that someone used, which I thought was really helpful, um, was that what, what keeps your character up at night? If your character woke in the middle of the night, worried, what would it be? And I kind of like that, you know, what would, cause then I think about what keeps me awake at night and how different does it make my day the following day or, or how I approach anything in my life. So those, those, I like to round the characters out. They're very important to me, um, about characters. I think it was Sarah Phelps who, who, um, adapts a lot of Agatha Christie's work for the screen. Um, and she said that plot, um, plot is very simple. It's characters that are complex. So, because, you know, it's like this happens, then that happens, then that happens, but it's how the characters react to those three things, you know, this, that, and the ending that make it, it make people want to read and be drawn in. I think one of the things that I love about mysteries also is that you kind of have to put yourself in the circumstances of what happened and think, okay, could I be pushed to do this? Could this, you know, could this happen to me? Could I, you know, could I kill somebody? What would the circumstances take? Because that's sort of the question that it asks, like what circumstances would make someone kill someone else? And, and you get to ask this what if question. And so I think that's a really fun and, and dark, but also fun question to be able to ask. And then to look at the characters and say, okay, well, who is this person? And, and what circumstances are they pushed to in which this is the only way they could react? Yeah, it's, it's so true. It's like, I think, um, I went on a ride along a, a long time ago, um, with a Las Vegas PD homicide. And we actually got a murder. In fact, <gasps> It was terribly exciting. I shouldn't say it, but it was terribly exciting. Um, and he he maintained, the detective maintained, he said, absolutely everyone is is capable of murder, everybody. It's just, you know, certain people just don't have that, that sort of, I don't know what you'd call it really, um, sense of presence of mind not to take that step. I mean, I definitely... Probably I forget that we're on recording, but so my first husband, <laughs> um, there was a moment when um, we were driving to my uh, daughter's school and we were, had been divorced and everything. It had been very hostile. And um, he got, he, we had an argument and he got out of the car and he started walking in front of the car and it went right through my mind. I thought, shall I just, shall I just put the, my foot down on the accelerator? I mean, of, but of course I didn't because- right. Murder, but so I do think there are certain things which are triggers that that people can um, that that happen. But I also in murder mysteries, obviously, it's an exaggeration of our society. Everything's exaggerated, which is what makes it so compelling and why Agatha Christie is so popular because these people are probably living out like some, some of us would quite like to do at some point. I don't know. It makes me sound like a serial killer now, but <laughs> I'm just really interested like you, what is it that makes someone cross to the dark side? What? Cause sometimes it's a series of events, you know, it starts very small, but over time they've got more and more desperate. And then there's only one way out. 
So that's something I have noticed in my characters, actually, that with all the killers, without exception, there's been a sense of not compassion, but there's a sense of like, oh, yeah, I understand where why that person would do that. I don't have any characters where they're just evil because evil doesn't really interest me. I'm much more interested in what makes people do that um, from from their circumstances. Yeah, so, I think evil is too easy. It's like, yeah. oh, someone's just evil. That's why they do that. But but you don't really learn anything from evil. No, no. So so I that that I think is I, I've noticed them in that that I've always tried to soften or explain something about why someone would do that. Um, yeah, I think it's it's two things. It's like the victim can't be universally hateful. There has right. to be something about them that's redeemable. So it feels terrible what's happened. Because if someone is just evil and they get killed when you think, okay, fine. Yeah, good for you. It's almost like you have to care about the body in the library. You know, you have to know, you have to know something about the victim, um, even if they are pretty odious or something. But a lot of things too, um, I find it's all the first ones usually there's obviously the set up the body but then you've always got those four it's like it, it, the four reasons why people get murdered in books um that they they have something they saw something they know something or what's the other one i'm trying to think now isn't that dreadful? they have they saw uh, they see they something, know. something see know have and took i don't know Oh, yeah, something like that. I can't remember, but there are four. I know there are, and I'll probably find it afterwards and then wish I told you. But (laughs) a lot of it I like to do is the, um, obviously someone saw something or, you know, because that's normally what happens. That's why murderers get um, in mysteries. I have to keep adding that part because it is fiction, of course. Um, They get caught, you know, because they make mistakes. Um, That's that's what happens. They always make mistakes, leave something behind or... Well, hopefully they're not. I mean, it's also they're not like professional assassins. They're not trained for it. It's a it's a real person who's made a mistake in their life. Yeah. And there's also so much that you can see now and find out on the Internet about um, what people have, how they've been caught. And sometimes you're thinking, oh, my God, what were you thinking? Of course, you're going to get caught if you leave that behind, you know, your your front door key or something. Or your driver's so, license. Oh, your driver's license. Yeah, your ID. You know. So, um, yeah, so th- those those sorts of things make it um, easy. I don't know if you get my dog snoring then. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so I have a lot of fun with that. Once I once I've got the framework done, then I I start to enjoy it. But the first first two or three drafts are really agonizing. So how do I, you keep track as as someone who's now written thirteen onto fourteen books? So how do you keep it sort of fresh for yourself? And and they always get killed a different way. And you know, at the beginning, it's sort of like you have this wide open. Yeah, availability. But now you've, you know, people have died a new number of times because it's not always just one person who dies in the book. I mean, you don't end up like Midsummer Murders where there's like 12 per yeah, book. I, but <laughs> Midsummer Murders Bingo, that's actually a really good game where you, every, in every episode, there's, there's always like a, someone who's driving badly. It's usually his sidekick. And, you know, there's, oh, yeah. they're all Midsummer Murder rules. Like the vicar has a secret, you know. And there's always a shot. Head, 
<laughs> there's always that shot, which is you can't tell who it is. And they're standing in a tree yes. and there's some branches That's and it's a right. handheld camera. That's right. This is exactly it. And you never know if it's a man or a woman because no. it's like wearing some cape or something. Um, I, I have to admit the last I did realize when I was writing two books at the same time, which I really struggled. I, I, I've only done it once. Now I have to stagger it. I noticed that though I was writing similar themes in both. And I was thinking, oh, wait a second, haven't I just done that in that book? And I had. So um, I do scour like the internet and like weirdest ways people have died or something. And um, or it could be just a small story. You know, um, there was this is such a random thing, just as an example, which I haven't used yet, actually, because I'm not quite sure how I can make it fit. But um, in I live in Devon and uh, England, and um, what the it was actually the um, one of the musicians from the Electric Light Orchestra. Oh, really? Freak accident. You can totally check it out on on um, online. Um, he was driving his car, and it passed um, a, a, a field with a very high like slope. Everything is very like hilly here. And one of those giant hay bales, you know, those massive round ones yes. came free. It, ra- it rolled all the way down the hill, went over the hedge and landed on his car. It happened. It's a freak accident. So sometimes I'll try and find a freak accident and work it around. But it has to be believable, you know, about. Yeah, that's the thing is that there are some things that happen in real life and you hear this sometimes when people are writing books and they say no that really happened but it's like but it doesn't feel real when you read the book you think oh my god you must be joking yeah it's even exactly and and I think that's true that happens a lot as well it's like well even if it is true it just doesn't fit here the timing is off or something um but this is research that you're doing which is incredibly fun I do. I mean, I do that. Or I'm always keeping a notebook and overhearing something and always taking a conversation just one step further. Um, if I overhear people talking in the pub or something, awful, really. If they'll see me coming now. It's like, oh, what, don't she <laughs> or something. Um, but yeah, it, it's, um, there's really only 12 stories, I think someone said. Is that right? I forget. Something like there are only 12 basic stories about certain things like there's you know money greed you know the elements of why people do things so you're kind of stuck really because you have so that's why the characters to make those interesting enough to stay with the story because I don't know whether I thought about this and so many times when I've read a book it's not the plot that I remember it's the certain scenes that were very vivid to me or um, an interaction between two characters or something that was extremely visual and um, almost visceral that, that, you know, you, that, that I really caught, but I couldn't tell you where it fitted into the plot. So I think sometimes like focusing for me on the characters and, and how they interact around a murder situation um, will make, I don't think I've repeated a plot yet. Hope not. I don't think so. No, I think probably anyone who keeps lists is good enough to not repeat it yeah, if you've I got the list. I won't do that one again. Yeah, I'll do that another time. 
So is that something that gets discarded? Because something we were talking about earlier was the, you know, you've got 50,000 words in the first draft, you go to your next draft, your books end up being about 75,000 words. So there's, there's a large portion that gets discarded between first and second draft. And then there's more that comes. Is some of that the creation of the, the sort of visceral and this atmospheric energy that isn't necessarily there in a first draft? I think, I think you're right. I think sometimes, yeah, it's almost like a magic mist, if you like, that mm. swirling around the nugget or something, if that makes sense. And then if I was, some of it, if I was to save it and I go back and read it, I think, why have I kept this? There's nothing happening here. Because you always want to write something where something happens. And so I think, yeah, to answer your question, yeah, I wouldn't, I won't keep that stuff. I'll keep key pieces of dialogue, I think, where something has happened and, and delete and delete the rest. Um, yeah, but I, I, do, I do keep everything. It's difficult because I think some people tend towards overwriting and some people tend towards underwriting. And sometimes I worry that I am doing both at once, which is I haven't written enough, but there's still a lot that has to be cut out. So I'm wondering where you fall on that spectrum and, and how that works for you. I think, I don't think my, I think my books can be a little, um, lighter on things because I write so much dialogue. So I think sometimes they're quick, quick reads really. Um, I don't think I over, I don't think I overwrite. I think it's mostly cause I've, again, going back through screenwriting where I would keep paring down the dialogue until it was just the absolute minimum of what you have to say so unless unless there was yes every every sentence would have some something in it that was important which either showed character revealed character in some way or moved the plot forward I think I try I try to strive for that whether I make it I don't know but that's what I that's the goal and at what point in the drafts are you sort of asking that level of question? Because I think at a certain point, you're figuring out what the story is. And if you were to ask yourself, is this sentence an important sentence, you know, for every sentence, you would never get anywhere. So I'm wondering how many drafts in or how far are you into the process when you're starting to ask questions like, okay, I think you said maybe around the third or fourth, you're, you're starting to look on a paragraph by paragraph level. Is that when you're starting to think, is all of this necessary? Is all of this useful? How can I say the least amount possible and still communicate the information? I think that's a fourth draft. Okay. I do five. I do, yeah, four, four is, um, I'm pretty much tying everything up in the fourth, I think. And then the, the fifth or the polish for me. And I know a lot of people don't write that many drafts, by the way, but it just seems to come out that way for me. Um, so, yes, I think that's when I'll go through and think that's an unnecessary sentence. We, I, that's a repeat. I always read everything aloud because then you can hear if you've said the same thing. Every single book I have a, a special word that for some reason I'm obsessed about. It could be grinned or it could be, uh, I don't know, some crazy word that seems to repeat itself. Um, but then, you know, you can use that whole word um, that on Word, Microsoft Word, they have that way of finding out what favorite words that you use too many of. Can't remember how you work it out. <gasps> oh my God, we have to figure that out. Yeah, because it says it says how many times you might have written "she went red in the face" or something. Because that's one of my favorites. I've noticed that phrase. Or um, I yeah, tend some- to do that. I'll put the same word like three times in a paragraph and not yeah. notice it in the first draft. 
Mm-hmm. I do too. But well, I don't, but I don't censor myself when I'm at the beginning. I, I do that later. Cause at that time I'm on the Scrivener target thing. You know, uh, where you, yes. And so I am actually putting in unnecessary words to make my daily target. <laughs> so I'm sort of cheating really. And that's probably why I don't use it continuously because it's too it's too depressing if I'm cutting out and having to write 4,000 words in one day or something. Oh, no, I hate that with the targets. Yeah. I find it very difficult to cut. That's true. Mm. I just don't use them when I'm in a phase where I'm cutting and and rewriting. Yeah, yeah, you can't. I totally agree. It's it's too depressing. Because then you think, oh, no, I don't want it. Because then it makes you attach to things. Because if you... If you can't be precious about it, you know, if you have to cut it, you have to cut it. And I think that, I think it should count how many you write, regardless of what you cut. I I think there is even a way that you can do that. Does it say you can, you don't have to count deletions or something? Yes. Don't count deletions or something, because then it's like, you don't, then you feel no sense of progress. If you're just like, well, I have to keep this crappy scene that I actually think is not very good because otherwise I'm going to have to write 8,000 words today and I can't do it. Right, exactly. And and the other thing is that I just know that I can't write that many words a day. So what is it? What target do you work with? Um, I try to do a thousand, actually. Um, and that then sometimes I get, you know, I think once I go over 1500 to try and make up the word count, then I start to lose heart. And then I have to, it's just too much. Because I, I don't, I'm, I sort of write in spurts in a way, you know, sometimes I have a good day, sometimes I just can't, can't do it. Yeah. There's no sort of like rhythm to it really. Yeah. I think it's, yeah, I think it's important because, you know, it's okay. You know, if there's, there's not enough energy to get through. And I think knowing that it's not 12,000 words a day and that you've still written 14 books. Yeah. That's important to know. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I'm, I'm very hard on myself. I'm a, I am a bit of a perfectionist actually. And, um, so I find, I find I have to be happy with progress, not perfection. I try to hold on to that. I think that's really important. I think that's, I think that's the most important thing to remember because I think those of us who use writing or we're writers have language as a tool And that's both a positive thing and a negative thing because it's positive in that we create books out of it, but it's also negative in that we're uniquely talented at cutting ourselves apart. At least I know I am. Oh no, completely. I totally agree. Um, it's, it's really agonizing actually. Um, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. We have to use our skills positively. It's like the, the Spider-Man with great, with great talent. Is it with great talent? comes great responsibility. Oh yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. There was something, Oh, the other thing too, I find that does, that might help other, you know, uh, aspiring writers more than anything, um, is that when you finished a book, you you are going to get notes back from your editor and, and your agent, or, I mean, those are the notes I take notice of. I don't have beta readers or anything. Um, so I always know that when I finish a book, then I, I think, oh, it's okay. There's always room for, I mean, it'll be the best I can send it. I turn it in the best it can be, but I always know that there's the caveat that I'm going to get information back. So it's not ever like the final, final draft. You know, it's like, it's like, well, well, I know I've probably got two more shots at this. 
after I've finished this draft that I'm turning in. So that's sometimes I play that mind game with myself. So it doesn't have to be, it's as good as it can be, but it doesn't have to be perfect. There are still things that I need that need fixing. Plus you also want to sit with it so it can cook for a little bit. Mm. And I never have time for that. I'm always to the deadline. Like, you know, it's due in on Monday morning in New York and I am actually sending it on Saturday, you know, FedExing. So I, I, I envy those that say, oh, yes, I, I, I finished my manuscript. It's not due yet, but I can sit. I'm going to let it sit for a week and then look at it again. I'm thinking, oh, my God, I couldn't. I'm always like at the last minute. Uh, that's just the way I work, I think. I think this is something to remember, too. It's like people push and push and hope for the point when they're publishing and you lose that time. I mean, I think if your books, if everything goes well, then your first book is the only one that you're going to have that time yeah. with. Exactly. And I do say that to people, you know, enjoy this moment because it's great having contracts. Of course it is. But, um, you know, you can't, especially when you're on a schedule where you cannot be late because otherwise you'll miss your publishing date. You know, you you won't, it's, it's not like they can, cause they already, uh, the silly house, the new series I have, um, I turned that in, in, um, I think it was last summer, 2000 and, 18 and that's not coming out to august 2020 so that's been scheduled that far ahead so you can't you can't risk you can't risk it you know you want to you also you want your publisher to feel they can rely on you to turn in the book on time exactly so Mm. enjoy it enjoy it before you have that pressure I think my first my first book was um, the Vicky Hill exclusive book. That was eleven. I wrote eleven drafts of that one. Wow, yeah, that was my longest one. Eleven drafts. Yeah. I bet you learned a lot in them, and now you can use that knowledge, despite the fact that every time it feels like it's not going to work. That always felt. I know. I wish I could get over that, but I can't. I, I think can't. it's just part of the process. Yeah, I think so. That's when I would start looking for another job. <laughs> <laughs> Devon Jobs update and I'm going oh I don't know maybe I could work in a school as you know serving the lunches or oh good lord so I go through that I always do that subscribe to all the job websites and then suddenly something clicks and it's okay (laughs) maybe you'll find a good plot in those job websites oh that's a really good idea actually I know you should look at that that. (laughs) and yeah always, always have a notebook handy always well, this has been so helpful and, and so lovely to talk to you. And I'm so grateful that you were able to come on. Thank you so, so much. I really enjoyed it, actually. It's, um, it's been a lot of fun. So thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening to the Secret Library podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this week's show. You can keep the conversation going by leaving a comment in the show notes at secretlibrarypodcast.com or visit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash secretlibrarypodcast. You can also connect directly with me on Twitter or Instagram where I'm Caro Donahue. That's at C-A-R-O-D-O-N-A-H-U-E. I look forward to chatting with you there. See you next week. Until then, happy writing.